guys ready to dive into God's word again this Sunday? Continue our journey in John chapter, in John chapter 3? Amen. So we are, as the video said, we are in the Eternal Word series and we're going to look at the story between, the conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And I've titled the message this morning, Belief and Eternal Life. Belief and Eternal Life. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and as we begin to open your word and look deeper into this conversation between our Lord and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Lord, I know that built in to this conversation are so many wonderful truths, gospel truths that we're going to look at and to behold. And I just pray, God, that as we do that here this morning, that every person, Lord, that is here, that hears your word, that they will be ministered to, they will be challenged and encouraged, but also those that might not know you yet in a personal relationship, might not have made Jesus the Lord of their life. I pray that today that that would happen today, that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield were unlikely friends. They were alive during the 18th century. One was a politician, speaking of Benjamin Franklin, one was a politician, a scientist, and non-religious. Benjamin Franklin was non-religious. The other, George Whitfield, was a powerful, powerful orator and a gospel preacher who was used by God uh, to be one of the sparks of the great awakening of the 18th century. But they were, they were close friends, and it was an unlikely friendship. You ever had somebody that you were friends with, and people looked at you and thought, that is an unlikely friendship. I've had friends like that. And just to demonstrate how close they really were, Benjamin Franklin wrote a, a, wrote a, a letter, or he, he, he had these comments concerning George Whitfield. George Whitfield would take many journeys from England to America. He'd go, he came from England to America to preach the gospel in America, which is why the Great Awakening began to be sparked. And so uh, on hearing of George Whitfield's safe passage back to England, Ben Franklin said this. He said, I'm glad to hear that Mr. Whitfield is safe, arrived, and recovered his health. He is a good man, and I love him. He's a good man, and I love him. Well, George Whitfield wrote a letter, wrote a letter to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, as I said earlier, he was a brilliant scientist. Do you, what do you think of when you think of Benjamin Franklin? This bright light that's shining in my eyes right now. That's what you think of, electricity, the light. And George Whitfield continually wanted to see Benjamin Franklin be born again. And he wrote Benjamin Franklin a letter on August 17th, 1752, This is what George Whitfield said to Ben Franklin. I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world, Whitfield wrote, as you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. I love the phrase here in this letter. 
Give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. George Whitfield was begging Benjamin Franklin, I urge you as much as you're giving thought and thinking and action in your life to the, to, the, to the study of electricity, I would pray that you would give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, the mystery of the new birth. We will look at the premier section. I believe this is the premier section of the New Testament where we are going to look at the doctrine of the new birth, of salvation. And it's between, it's a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. We're going to look at how Jesus reveals the necessity of the new covenant reality of being born again. You know, sometimes when you talk to non-believers, or you may hear non-believers talk critically, maybe you hear it in the media or you hear conversations and they, they ridicule Christians and they'll, they'll, they'll use the term born again, but they'll use it as a term of criticism and they'll say, oh, that's just a bunch of born again Christians. You've heard something like that before? But this is a foundation of Christianity. This reality of being born again is what Jesus came up with. Not those that are critics of Christianity, Jesus talked about being born again. That being a Christian means you are born again. And so just to give us a little context before we jump into the conversation, that before we give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth, before we do that, we talked about last week in John chapter 2, right before we jumped into this section, we looked last week at the pride-crushing, worship-aligning, and comforting reality of God's perfect knowledge. And I want to encourage you, if you were unable to listen to that message from last week, I encourage you, go back. It's on YouTube. You can find it on our YouTube channel or on uh, our Facebook page or on our website. You find a link there to it. We talked about God's perfect knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. And that this knowledge that God knows, that he knows what is in man. Just three short verses. We see that God knows what is in man that we cannot hide. We cannot run from God. He knows our thoughts before we think them. Before a word is even on our tongue, he knows our words. He knows our thoughts all together, Psalms 139. And so this is what we looked at. In this knowledge that God has, he needs no one to give him that knowledge. And that was the profound reality that we looked at last week, that God doesn't need anyone to give him any information about anything. And that is pride-crushing knowledge. That is worship-aligning knowledge. But it is also great comfort for our hearts in the middle of a world that seems to be going mad right now. This truth, this biblical truth that God has perfect knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning and we are in the middle of his creation and his reality and the unfolding of his plan in society. So this is where we are at and it's interesting that Jesus had people that came to follow him as we saw in John 2. It says, it says that he knows what is, he knew what was in man so he did not entrust himself to them And then we transition right to John chapter 3, and it says, now there was a man. Now there was a man. So before we jump into the text, here are the three points from this conversation we're going to look at here this morning between Jesus and a Pharisee, this man who was a Pharisee. The first point will be this, the teacher of the law needs saving. Being saved is a miracle from the Spirit of God, and everyone who believes will be saved, and everyone who rejects will be condemned. So let's look at the text, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. John 3, starting in verse 1. 
It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So the first thought we're going to bring out here, the first point from these first seven verses is this, is that the teacher of the law needs saving. The teacher of the law needs saving. Jesus knows what is in man. Now there was a man. And who is this teacher of the law? He's Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? He came to Jesus at night. It says here in John 3, he came to Jesus at night. And who is the man that came to Jesus at night? Well, he was a Pharisee. And he would have been a part of the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin would have been a 70-member ruling body for the nation of Israel. Some, some commentators and some translations emphasize the fact that it says that Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. The teacher. It means that he was, he could have been considered the premier teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was the premier teacher of Israel and he was a Pharisee. If you study about the Pharisees uh, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees would have been considered the keepers of the law, the guardians of the law of God. They were the guardians of the word of God and, and they studied the Torah, which would be the first five books of our Old Testament. Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they, they, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, trying to skip over Leviticus as you're doing in your Bible reading plan. And, um, and they were the, they were the keepers of the law of God. And many of the Pharisees would have memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. Can you imagine memorizing Leviticus? These men, these Pharisees, they knew the law of God and they were fastidious, meaning that they were diligent in their study of the law of God. But not only that, they, they were so committed to obeying God, so committed to following after him that they, they created over 600 other laws and customs and, 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 and traditions that would bolster the law of God as revealed in the Ten Commandments because they wanted to make sure that they were obeying God and living rightly and purely before him. And so not every Pharisee, I think, should get a bad rap. There are obviously some, as we read in Jesus' life, he would re- rebuke the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. Some Pharisees were hypocritical because they would follow all these traditions that they came up with to try to live right before God and obey his law, but they were hypocrites. And Jesus exposed their, hip- their hypocrisy. Why? Because Jesus knows what is in man. But Nicodemus was one of those Pharisees. One, one commentator says this about Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus was a man of high moral character, deep religious hunger, and yet profound spiritual blindness. 
profound spiritual blindness. I, I, I don't necessarily think that because he was in spiritual blindness, that's the reason why he came at night. But I, I can't help but think that there could, there's this connection here. He comes at night, and I think it, it is really a reflection of the fact that he is in spiritual darkness. I think it could also be a reflection of the fact that he's a little intimidated to come uh, to Jesus during the day and he might, because he might be ridiculed by his other Pharisee brothers. But either way, he came to Jesus. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he doesn't vocalize a question. If you notice in the text, he doesn't ask Jesus a question at all in the whole conversation, except for what we're going to get to later on. But in this first interaction, he doesn't really ask Jesus a question when he starts out. He makes a statement. Look, look back at the text. And what does uh, uh, Nicodemus say? He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you, you need to give Nicodemus some credit. Nic, Nicodemus is acknowledging that Jesus is no ordinary man. And what is he basing that knowledge on? What is he basing this recognition of Jesus being no ordinary man? Why is he saying that? Because you're doing these signs. Clearly you must be from God because look at the signs that you're doing. Does that sound familiar to last week's message? That it says that many believed in him last week. Many believed in him because of the signs that he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because they were curious and believed in him. Not for who he was, but for what he was doing. And so Nicodemus has that similar type of approach. He's saying you have to be from God because look at all the signs that you're doing. And it is interesting also that he approaches Jesus as rabbi. He says rabbi, rabbi, which means teacher. He says you are a teacher. You you must be a teacher come from God. And then Jesus says, okay, do you think I'm a rabbi and I'm a teacher come from God? How about you let me teach you now? How about you let me teach you? And notice what Jesus says after Nicodemus makes his statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly. What what, what does that mean, truly, truly? The, 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 The word truly is translated as the word amen or amen. And he says it twice, amen, amen, which amen means, means truth. It means the solemn truth. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, You believe I'm a teacher come from God? You believe it because you see the signs? Okay, well, I'm going to teach you something now. You are a teacher, considered possibly the teacher of Israel, the premier teacher of Israel. Now, you think I'm from God, now I'm going to teach the teacher. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you is the solemn truth. This is what Jesus is telling to Nicodemus in these first seven verses. He's saying, I'm about to teach the teacher. You are somebody who pursues the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Yahweh. You love the law of God. You want to know him more. You want to obey him. And you're coming to seek me because you are, you're thinking, how can he do these signs unless he's from God? There's a curiosity that's, that's in you. I see the curiosity. I see that you're interested. Okay, you want truth. You're a teacher. Let me teach you truth. Truly, truly. Truly, truly. And what does Jesus tell him? Unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You know how earth-shattering that would have been for Nicodemus to hear? First of all, he doesn't understand it. But in his mind, seeing the kingdom of God 
was the culmination of all of their lives as a, a, as a Pharisee. Seeing the kingdom of God. We want to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them this riddle, this mystery. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus really, in essence, telling Nicodemus? He's saying to Nicodemus, he's saying, the way in which you think you're going to see the kingdom of God because of your commitment to the law of God is not how it's going to happen. Unless one is born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. So here's the first question that Nicodemus asked from the text. How can a man be born when he's old? You know, if, if, if you're really not understanding what Jesus is saying, which most, most disciples throughout his life never understood most of what he was saying, that is a valid question, would it not be? Born again? Okay, this guy, this guy is out of his mind. How can a man be born when he's old? So don't criticize Nicodemus on this side of salvation. We might be quick to criticize him and say, I would never ask that question. Yeah, we probably would. We'd probably be thinking, okay, this guy's a little bit off his rocker here. So let me ask him a question. How can a man be born when he's old? Does he have to enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees and the Jewish nation would have placed their hope in the scriptures and their ability to maintain observance to see the kingdom of God, not being this idea of being born again. Look, look what John 5 says about this. It says Jesus talked to some Pharisees and some religious leaders after he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he says this in John 5. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see what Jesus is saying there? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures is where you will have eternal life. And you miss the point that the scriptures point to me and that it is in me that you will have eternal life. And this is the track that he's trying to get Nicodemus to walk on. He's trying to get Nicodemus to see that it's not the law, it's not the Torah, it's not observance of traditions, man-made traditions and laws that will get you to see the kingdom of God and have eternal life. It is being born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it yet, and Jesus will continue to explain it, but the teacher of the law needs saving. He needs to be saved. The teacher needs to be saved. And, and if you notice in John 5 there, this, this, this comparison here, it says, it says to these Pharisees in John 5, it says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we can say this, that Nicodemus did come to Jesus. And yes, it was at night, but he did come. He did come. So I'll tell you, daytime or nighttime, come to Jesus. I don't care what time it is. Daytime, nighttime, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., come to Jesus. Come with your curiosity. Come with your questions. Come with your fears. Come with your doubts. Daytime, nighttime, you may not understand what it means to be born again, but come to Jesus. Just as Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John 5, he says to Nicodemus, to have life, you got to be born again. In essence, Jesus was saying this, your spiritual life is not found in the scriptures themselves. Spiritual life is found in who the scriptures point to. In who the scriptures point to. 
this new covenant reality, this born again reality we see all over the Bible. It's everywhere. One section that I think is so profound is the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. The nation of Israel is in exile. They're in Babylonian captivity. And the weeping prophet Jeremiah is calling to the nation of Israel, repent, repent, come back to God, come back to God. It's a whole nation that had abandoned God. This was the history of the nation of Israel. They would abandon God. They would be, 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 be taken captive and, they would, and then they would go through this pattern again of, of intermarrying with pagan nations and, adopt, and adopting idolatry. And then and they would go through this whole pattern. And Jeremiah the prophet, through all of his prophecies, crying out, God through his prophet, crying out to return and listen to the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a precursor to the new covenant reality that Jesus is speaking of in John 3. He's saying, he's saying that you must be born again, Nicodemus. And the prophet Jeremiah is saying that there's a time that is coming where I will make a covenant with them and I will put my law within them. This is the heart of the gospel. Jeremiah is speaking of this same gospel reality that Jesus is speaking of to Nicodemus. If the heart is not transformed, the life will not follow. The heart is not transformed, the life will not follow, Nicodemus. Eventually, you'll be exposed as a hypocrite. If the gospel does not transform our heart, and we are just trying to manipulate our life to submit to to rules, even biblical rules, if Christ is not the Lord of our life, then we will eventually be exposed as a hypocrite. It's about the heart, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? Born again. New creation. The old does what? It passes away. Behold, the new has come. Born again. New creation. This is what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. He's saying we are not saved by the observance of the law. We are not saved. and we, we, we are saved when we are born again from above. And this new covenant work transforms us from the inside out. From the inside out. We go from trying to prove who we are, trying to prove who we are, to just being who we are. You guys get in the trap of trying to prove who you are? I like to buy my wife a lot of things. I like to buy her stuff. I enjoy, I'm a spender. Any, any men in here, are you spenders and you drive your wife crazy? <laughs> yes, I'm a spender. Um, 
And so, like, I like to buy stuff. And, and when I'm not buying stuff for myself, I like to buy stuff for my wife. And what's one of the things that I enjoy to do, to buy stuff for her? It's, it's the way that I like to communicate love to her. But unfortunately, sometimes uh, when I buy her things, and I'm trying to communicate love to her through my gift giving. It really is not one of her love languages, so to speak, because uh, she is the budgeter of the family. She looks at the bills and she documents the bills. And, and so when she sees that I buy her something, I'll never forget one time when we first got married, I learned this lesson early, still trying to learn it, but I bought her a dozen roses and the roses are not cheap. And I remember I brought them to her and she was like, oh, thank you. And I could just tell right away, she's thinking, Budget. But what am I doing, husbands? What are we doing when we're buying things for our wife? We're doing things for our life, for our wife. We're trying to communicate to her that we love her. That, that we love her. I'm doing something. I'm doing something. I want you to know that I love you. So I want to buy you this. I want to take you on a trip. And I want you to know for those who are at the marriage night, I am taking my wife to the beach for her birthday this year, by the way. I already have it booked. I already have it booked. What, 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 what are we, we're trying to prove something that is internal. And what is it that our wives really just want? They don't want the stuff. Now, wives, I know you want the stuff. <laughs> they don't necessarily just want the stuff. They want what the stuff represents, which is your heart. I know my wife would take me and my eyes and my ears paying attention to her in conversation far more than she would ever take roses or trips to the beach or anything else that I could ever do. It's not about what we do to prove who we are. That's not Christianity. That's not being born again. Living the born again life is that who we are just overflows and spills out all over the place. Because it is who we are. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You have the script flipped. You're trying to do on the outside to prove who you are on the inside. But I'm telling you, you must be born again. And that from the inside, the Christian life flows out. Do you guys follow that? The teacher of the law needs saving. Why? Why does the teacher of the law need saving? Needs saving because the law cannot save. So here's, here's a question that I would, I would ask you practically in your life. Have you lost the joy of your salvation because you're busy trying to prove who you are as a Christian? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? It's so easy to do that. To lose the reason why we do what we do. Why do we go to church? Or, 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 or has your faith just become a mechanical religious experience? And, and you wake up on Sunday morning and you say, okay, I'm going to church today because this is what we do because we are a Christian. I got to do something because I am a Christian. This is what Christians do. We go to church. Or is it the joy of your heart to walk through those doors, whatever doors you come in? It is the joy of your heart to lift up your voice in your hands and worship with the people of God, to see the Bible opened and read and taught and explained. It is the joy of your life because your heart overflows with passion and love for your Savior. So much of a difference. Have we lost the joy of our salvation? Do we need to remember back to when we were saved? The born again reality in our life. The teacher of the law, Nicodemus, needs saving because the law cannot save. The law actually reveals that we need saving. Do you believe that? 
Let's continue on. This is the first thing we see. The teacher of the law needs saving. Let's look back at the text. Let's continue on in this conversation. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, how is that possible, Jesus? Teacher, truly, truly, I hear you say truly, truly. You're telling me the solemn truth that I got to be born again, but I don't know what born again is. You're telling me I got to go back into my mother's womb? Is this, you're, you're just too mysterious, Jesus. Quit being mysterious. Look how... Jesus continues to be mysterious in the conversation to answer Nicodemus's question. What does Jesus say? John three verses eight says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus asks the second question. How can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you do not understand these things. Second reality we're going to see from this conversation is that being saved is a miracle from the Spirit of God. The teacher of the law needs saving and all those who are placing their hope in the law of God or their observance of being right and holy, if you're placing your hope in that instead of the perfect righteousness of Christ, you need saving today. And that saving is a miracle from the Spirit of God. It's a miracle. Isn't it interesting? Nicodemus asks this question or makes this statement and Jesus gives this mysterious response to Nicodemus' statement about being born again and Nicodemus is confused. You would think that Jesus would try to start making it a little bit more clear for him. But what does Jesus say? Look at the wind. Now perhaps some people, I think, Commentators have said perhaps it was windy. I think it would be nice to think that it might have been windy just for storytelling purposes. Can you imagine it's at night and it's a little windy and Jesus says, hey, look at the wind. You feel that? Nicodemus is like, oh my goodness, I don't know where this guy's going now. <laughs> look at the wind. He said, I got to be born again. Now he's saying, look at the wind. He says, you hear its sound. It blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Jesus uses an illustration about wind to further make his point to Nicodemus that he cannot save himself. And what is the point of Jesus talking about the wind? We, we can't get lost on this. This is just not some mysterious statement that we can't understand. What is he trying to say? He says, the wind, you see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. He, and he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, which is to be born again. Being born again is like the wind. Meaning that salvation comes from where? From above. Salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from above, Nicodemus. Not from below in what we do. This illustration from Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus that salvation is not man climbing his way up to God, but rather God coming down to save man. The Holy Spirit... Uh, is described as wind in other portions of Scripture. And, and this word wind here in John chapter 3 is where we get the word. It's translated to be the word pneuma, which means spirit, which is another word for the Holy Spirit, pneuma, which is translated to mean spirit. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person can be described like the wind. Listen, here's, here's a summary of what it would be like. It, it's, 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 it's this. The effects of the Spirit's work in the life of a person is evident, but the work is supernatural. You don't know how, how does the wind work? I don't know. Anybody figure out how the wind works? 
God, that's God's business. God's the one who creates the wind. You ever tried to create? I mean, you might can manufacture wind through a fan, but really that's another mystery that you don't understand either. Benjamin Franklin knew a little bit about that. Plug it into a wall, get some electricity, right? But we can't control the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Salvation is God's business. We see the effects of it, but the work is supernatural. It's supernatural. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound. You see the effects, but you don't know where it goes. And Nicodemus responds to this explanation of the new birth of the wind. And what does he say? How can these things be? How can it be? Isn't that so often what what we say? How can these things be? How can this actually be the case? Warren Warren Wearsby says this about the nation of Israel during Nicodemus' day and, and about Nicodemus. He says the nation of Israel, including Nicodemus and his fellow council members, was dead and hopeless. But in spite of the morality and religion of the people, they needed the life of the Spirit. The new birth from above is a necessity. You must be born again. But it is also a mystery. Everyone who is born of the Spirit is like the wind. You cannot fully explain or predict either the wind or the child of God. Nicodemus came by night and he was still in the dark. He could not understand a new birth even after Jesus had explained it to him. How can these things be? I don't get it. I don't get being born again. I don't know what you're talking about, about the wind. What is Jesus doing here with Nicodemus? He's pressing in to the heart of Nicodemus the reality that being born again is what God does. It's what God does. It's not what you do, Nicodemus. No matter how hard someone tries, unless God does the saving, that hard work in reality is dead works. They're dead works. There's a great example of this in another prophet from the Old Testament. It would be the prophet Ezekiel. Prophet Ezekiel was given a vision again, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is in exile. They're dispersed. They're dispersed all over, and they're under the judgment of God. The prophet sees a vision that is he's to declare to a scattered and exiled Israel. And Ezekiel, in this vision, Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones that represents Israel. And this is what he sees in the valley of dry bones. He sees no life, no flesh, no blood, no breath, just bones. The people of God, the pe- Israel, no life, no flesh, no blood, no breath, just bones. And he sees this vision. Look at the vision, Ezekiel 37. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he, he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know, you know. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open the graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I 
open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Did you hear it? I will do it. God says, says, says to the, the nation of Israel through his prophet, you look like a valley of dead bones and dry bones, no life in you. I'm the one who raises dry and dead bones. No life, no breath, no blood, no life, just dry, dead bones. And the Lord says, I am the one who raises the dead. I raise the dead. This is what Nicodemus does not understand yet. Why? Because he doesn't know yet that he is in darkness. And people that you try to witness to in your life, you're trying to tell them they need to be born again. They're going to respond like Nicodemus. Born from what? Well, because you're dead spiritually. I'm not dead. I'm alive. Look at me. And, 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 and this is our response apart from God raising us up from the dead. Salvation comes from us in our own thinking. We don't understand what it means to be born again because we don't think we need to be born again. We don't think we are dead. We think we are alive and we lack our life on our own, doing what we want to do, living how we want to live. And the point of this vision is that God is the one who will raise up natural Israel, but he alone also has the power to raise up the spiritually dead. God alone has the power to give life. And so being saved is a miracle of God. Jesus speaks to the impossibility of salvation apart from God. He speaks about it in John 6. What does John 6, say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what does he say? And I will raise him up on the last day. Amen? It's powerful. It's impossible to save yourself. God's the one who saved you. Before you come to Christ and surrender to his saving, you're like a pile of dead bones. It's impossible for you to save yourself. God has to be the one who raises you like Jesus raised Lazarus from, from the dead. You remember when Jesus was at the tomb, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He called out to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus didn't lay there dead and wake up and try to, walk out stumbling in his grave clothes on his own. No, it took the son of God to come and declare to him, Lazarus, get up out of that grave. And in the same way, that's what happens to us when we're born again. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, points his finger at us and says, get out of the grave. I'm raising you up today. (laughs) Salvation is impossible without God. Trying to accomplish something that only God can do would be like the home of Christian school boys varsity basketball team going head to head against the New Orleans Pelicans and winning. That, my brothers and sisters, Mr. Jimmy, I know we've got a good team, but that, my brothers and sisters, is an impossibility. Can you imagine? I mean, it, I guess it would be possible if you, if you, cut off their legs, the Pelican players' legs. <laughs> and you, you know, like the tallest player in our team might be six foot three, potentially. I mean, you know, maybe six four. The shortest player in the Pelicans might be six foot four, <laughs> right? It's not possible. And this is the same reality for us as Christians. Being saved in and of ourselves is impossible. So how does that, how does it meet our world here today? I've got a question for you. 
Are you praying for someone to be born again and it currently looks like a valley of dry bones? You pray for somebody right now and it looks like a valley of dry bones. No flesh, no blood, no breath, just dry bones. You're preaching, you're living, you're loving, you're praying, you're inviting, and it just looks impossible. And I'll just tell you, that's a good place to be because God is in the business of doing what is impossible. He's in the business of raising the dead. That's what Christianity is all about. The crux of our faith is in the fact that God raised himself from the dead and in return, he raises the dead and makes them alive with him forever. Do you believe that here today? Keep praying. Keep praying because God can do the impossible. He can breathe life into dead bones. He can breathe life into dead bones. Being born again is a miracle from God. And may we never, hear me, may we never undersell and underemphasize the miracle of salvation. God is still doing miracles today. He does them every day and he can raise you today from spiritual death. Maybe you're here today and you've not been made alive in Christ. You are not in Christ and the old has not passed away and the new has not come. You are still currently living in the reality of the sins of your life and the consequences of those sins. You're still living in the reality of being separated from God as your creator. And you see and you know today right now that if you were to not, if you were to cease from existing on planet earth, you don't have peace in your heart about where you would spend eternity. I'm here to tell you today that the reason you have no peace is because you have not been made alive by God today yet. You need to be born again. So this leads us to the culmination of the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee who needs to be born again. The Pharisee who knows the light of the law of God, but he himself is in spiritual darkness. So here's a third point it's the culmination of the conversation the third point is this is that everyone who believes will be saved everyone who believes will be saved and everyone who rejects will be condemned look at the text john 3 verse 14 and moses and as moses jesus says as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So notice in verse 14, Jesus uses an example from Numbers 21 about Moses and about a bronze snake and about a snake on a pole. You guys ever read Numbers 21? And the nation of Israel complains against God. They rebel against God and God judges them and people begin to get eaten, bitten by snakes And then they start crying out and they say, God, help us. Moses, God, somebody, help us. We we repent. We will stop rebelling. So God tells Moses, 
make a bronze image of a snake, put it on a pole, lift it up, and everyone who looks up to the lifted up bronze snake will be saved. They will not die. And Jesus, in verse 14, he is telling this story because he knows who he's talking to. Who is he talking to? A Pharisee who would know this story in Numbers 21 backwards and forwards. And he's saying, he's using an illustration to help Nicodemus to get it. He's saying, remember, Nicodemus, you're the keeper of the law. You're the teacher of the law. You know the Torah. Do you remember, Nicodemus, in Numbers? Do you remember what Moses had to do, what God instructed him to do? Well, just like all who looked at the bronze serpent were saved, so it is the Son of Man, when he is lifted up, all who look to him will be saved. Isn't that powerful? What our Lord does for this Pharisee, he says, look, I want you to get it. I know I'm confusing you about being born again. And I know I threw you for a loop when I started talking about the wind. But certainly you'll understand Numbers 21. Certainly you you know about Moses and what he did. Well, in the same way, all those who will look to the Son of Man when he is lifted up will be saved. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of the culmination of the whole story, the whole conversation? What's the point of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? The point is this, is that belief equals eternal life. And not believing equals condemnation and eternal death. That's the point. It's not more complicated than that. It's not more nuanced than that. There's not layers of truth built into this narrative and you got to find hidden meanings. No, it's pretty straightforward. Born again Looking to Christ who, is, who will be lifted up on the cross equals eternal life. Believing unto salvation equals heaven. Rejecting equals hell and eternal condemnation. It's that simple. This is the reality of what Jesus is speaking of to Nicodemus. Belief, salvation, not belief, eternal death. Right in the middle. Right in the middle of all this conversation is the most famous verse of all time. You'll see it at sporting events. Somebody will wave a sign. What's, what's the verse in the end zone? For what? Say it, say it to me. Let, let, let's, let's all say it. For God loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In the middle, between, between belief and eternal life and rejection and eternal death is God's love. For God so loved the world. You know, some people would like to believe that Jesus didn't come to draw distinctions, but to rather bring people together in unity. And that's what people want to reduce Christianity down to. They want to look at the love of Christ and, the, and his compassionate life. And they want to say that the reason for his love is so that we would stop hating each other. and We'd have no more wars and we'd have peace and we'd bring people together. That's what Christ is all about, right? Earthly unity and peace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Is it just so that people can love each other and walk in unity? No, this is not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is that the love came so that people could be saved from eternal damnation. People like to strip Christianity of its distinctions and its offensive language. Some people want to say that Christianity is just a religion of peace. Religion of peace. But some famous guy in history, 
Some famous guy in history said something like this. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a, but a sword. What, what does that mean, I didn't come? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword represents his word and his truth. And his sword divides and it cuts and it separates and it brings clarity. It cuts through all the false beliefs about who he is and what he came to do. And the sword comes to separate and to divide and to say, here is truth and here is error. And here is the way to righteousness in heaven. And here is, here is how you can escape the eternal punishment because of sin. Love was sent in the person of Christ so that sinful humanity can escape judgment and receive eternal life. Love was sent to save and redeem from the curse of sin. So at this point in our conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, Jesus has clearly pressed into the heart of Nicodemus that what needs to happen to him can only be accomplished by God. I mean, he clearly, he, I, I, I think Nicodemus eventually gets it and there's evidence that he, he, he had placed his faith in Christ at the end of Jesus' life. He, he, he got it later, but he's not getting it now. And Jesus was trying to press into him that he can't save himself by his allegiance to the law. And his spiritual darkness and his dry bones cannot be healed unless the Spirit of God blows upon him. And that the demonstration of the love of Christ was not for sentimental reasons. It was for a rescue mission. He's trying to press this into Nicodemus' heart. And you see this reality that Jesus is pressing into Nicodemus. You see it. Look at 1 John 5. Another one of John's letters. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, true life. Whoever has not the son has not life. This is the point of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And you know what Nicodemus, Jesus is ultimately trying to get Nicodemus to do? Snap back to an eternal reality, an eternal perspective. He's trying to get him to to think about eternal matters. Snap back, Nicodemus, here. You're focusing on observance of the law. You're focusing on the kingdom of God coming because of what I do. I'm here to tell you that it's so much bigger than that. It's about what I came to accomplish, which is to save you from your sins. Snap back to reality, Nicodemus. And I think for many of us here today, this is what we have to do. We have to snap back to the reality of what the gospel message is actually all about. It's about saving the lost. It's about redeeming those that are enslaved to sin. It's about rescuing people from hell. This is the message of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have what? Everlasting life. I've lost count of the times in my life that I have forgotten the eternal perspective in any one situation. I've lost count. And you're the same way. I mean, I remember one time, many of you have heard this story. But for some of you, you've never heard this story. But we went camping one time, me and my wife and my kids. And, and, and um, just like Nicodemus um, went to Jesus at night, 
I just have to tell you that trying to set up a tent at night is not the way to go. Especially when you've set up the tent before. Or, or you, excuse me, you've never set up the tent. We had never set this tent up. And it was one of those tents that it said, one, two, three, it pops up. Liars. <laughs> Liars. So we're with our young kids and my wife, and I'm urging them to leave. We've got to leave. We've got to leave because we've got to get before the sun goes down to where I can set up this tent that I've never set up before. And sure enough, we get there late. We get there at night. Sun's coming down. And I just, for the lack of a better term, lose my religion. <laughs> I mean, I am just like, just like, the kids are like, Daddy, you can do it. You know, do this, do that. I'm like, no, I got it. Leave me alone. And, and, put the, and I got the car lights on. And, and I'm just like, and my, I lost all eternal perspective about why I'm here. I'm here to spend time with my family and grow together and unity and love and Jesus and all that stuff. And my little Eliana, how old was she? Seven years old. And in the middle of my tirade of selfishness, Eliana says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. <laughs> you want to talk about snap back to an eternal perspective? That's all it took. Snap back to an eternal perspective. And you know what actually happened? My wife said, said, look, let's look at the instructions. <laughs> it's another lesson built in there. And we got it together. And I think that's so often what we have to do as Christians. We need to be snapped back into the reality of what this is actually all about. It's about a Pharisee who's in spiritual darkness. But it's also about a pagan who's in spiritual darkness. The person who thinks they're religious and the one who's not religious at all. The one who is religious and the one who's not, both need saving. And Jesus came to save. And salvation is a miracle from God. And you know how he does the miracle? He does it through us, through our lips, through us declaring the message of Jesus Christ. And so we need to snap back to an eternal perspective so that we can begin to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go so that they can understand this great love that God has for them in Christ, that they can be born again. I believe this is what Jesus was doing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus he didn't understand the eternal perspective and he's, he's saying things like this, you must be from God because of the signs. He's thinking about the signs, he's thinking about earth, he's thinking about earthly realities and Jesus says, you must be born again. Look at the wind. Yeah, I know, but look at the signs. Look at the wind. Jesus says, you must be born again. Jesus snaps Nicodemus out of his earthly evaluation of the signs that Jesus is performing and says, there are eternal matters at stake here. You know, I think Paul helps us with understanding how we can snap back to eternal realities. He says this in Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. So here's the conclusion. Here's my question to you. What is it that burdens our minds today? What is it that might motivate us to have a late night conversation like Nicodemus? 
Or said another day, said another way, what are we giving diligent heed to today? What are we giving diligent heed to? George Whitfield to Benjamin Franklin. I urge you to give diligent heed. As George Whitfield admonished Benjamin Franklin in 1752, here's, how, here's what I would admonish you. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. I urge you, I humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. Would you close your eyes this morning? Let's hear today. Father, I thank you for your word and what it does for us and in us and to us. God, I thank you for this conversation that we got to eavesdrop on between you and Nicodemus. And I pray that these truths that you were conveying to Nicodemus, that they would be pressed into our hearts and that we would be snapped back to an eternal perspective in the way that we live here and now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I love you. I'll see you next week.